Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, robotics, business, and more. My name is Aaron Goff, owner of Goff Custom Knives, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Frank, from the Frank Brothers Guitar Company. How are you, man? I'm well. How's it going, buddy? Better than last week. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I had a shit week last week. I'm feeling more upbeat this week. I've had my ups and downs, but I'm feeling better. Good. Yeah, it's been a really weird... Like the last three or four weeks has been really slow for orders. Like slow enough that I was like, is my website broken? <laughs> yeah. Like what is happening? That's, uh, yeah, that's, well, the, I, I don't know if you suffer from this, but we always at the beginning of summer, mm. like hit a bit of a, a slow season or find that a bit of a slow season. Right. I think it's because it's just nice out. People right. aren't spending as much time at home on the computers doing that sort of stuff they're actually out being active <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the problem is that I, I my patterns of sales have never been consistent enough for me to know what they are right i just don't know you know um so yeah like, but when it gets like this i'm always like oh my god is is this it is my business dead is it going to be like this forever you know yeah how do you uh how do you deal with that mentally um i break down all right. Okay. So you go to that dark place and you live there for a while. Yeah, exactly. Until it gets better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't gotten better, but I'm just distracting myself with other shit. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're in that right now. Mm. Um, and we just take that as a time to focus on production because when we don't have to do, be answering a lot of, sales inquiries where right. you get a little more time to focus on production yeah and you get to catch up i guess right a little bit yeah yep. it's scary as hell though yeah it is yeah and i've been as i said last episode i've been paying down my debt which means that you know because things have been going fairly well this year so i was like okay i'm gonna get aggressive at paying off my debt which means that my like cash on hand is like nothing you know? yes so not having cash to ride out a quiet time is um it's it's an unpleasant feeling. <laughs> yeah, no, I know the feeling because I mean, we we were in a really good spot in terms of like taking orders. Mm-hmm. We were getting lots of orders when we bought the Haas. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> so there goes your uh, cash stockpile. That was it. Yeah. Um, we were like, let's just do it. We don't want to pay anything, you know, monthly on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. We had had the dough, and then, you know, 
it's you lose that comfort of seeing that money in in the the bank account. It is nice to open the bank account and like see some money in there, isn't it? It's nice to see something. In there, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. How are things with you guys otherwise? Good. We have like a boatload of guitars to ship this week. Oh, which great. It's scary because the person we let go was doing the shipping. Mm. Uh, and so now it's falling back onto my plate and it's time consuming to ship a guitar. Yeah, because I guess you have to have like lots of certifications and yeah, we have. Sorts of things, right? um, I'm sitting closer to the air compressor. Just warning. <laughs> um, we have uh, f- to ship to the states about five documents to fill out, and it's not all that crazy. It's like a commercial invoice, a NAFTA certificate of origin. So that means hmm. that the guitars, you, the, the recipient doesn't owe duty or tax on them because right. we have free trade between Canada and the U.S. And Mexico. Um, we have a plant and plant product declaration so that they they know what's in what the guitar is made out of, right? Because they're restricted species of woods that you could make a guitar out of. And then a I don't know if you have to do this one, but we have to tell them that there's nothing chemically dangerous about the instrument. Hmm. Um, I forget what it's called. This one. Um. Yeah, we just have to say it doesn't contain any like chemicals. <laughs> I yeah, I do none of those. Mm, that's nice. Yeah, what, I just one of the do biggest... um cut like a, a commercial invoice and that's right. it. Right. Yeah, well, I mean the guitars are valued over 2500 US dollars. Yeah, which means that there are extra declaratory requirements, right? Especially in the states. Right. A lot of the guitars like if you know most countries don't require that much. If we're shipping anywhere other than the states, you really just need the commercial invoice, and um, you just need to uh, submit a document to the Canadian border uh, to CSBA, CBSA, yeah, mm, yeah, Canadian Border Services, uh, and that's a really easy document. Now it's all online, so it's right. really easy to ship a guitar <laughs> pretty well anywhere. I always, I always do include anytime we're shipping t- outside of. Canada, um, not to the U.S. I still include that plant product declaration, mm. and I specify that it doesn't contain an, um, green wood that could contain yes. live insects. Because right. shipping to Australia one once, you know, it's an island nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were they held the guitar up for oh I think about two weeks because I didn't state that that it may not it, that it does not contain live insects. Right. <laughs> Or bugs, or yeah, invasive species. So, as you might know, I'm from Australia. I I could hear it a hint uh-huh. of it in your voice. Yeah, and Australia's really big on biosecurity because, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are some like really common species of animals in Australia that are, are not indigenous to Australia, like rabbits, foxes. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like, you know, the the colonists brought like rabbits with them because they were like oh we love to hunt rabbits we should bring some rabbits you know and then there's no natural predators for rabbits so then they're like oh god rabbits are everywhere and they're eating our crops so we should bring foxes to like ah. hunt the the rabbits you know and then it just Playing kept going god. yeah it, it went terribly so the horses aren't indigenous to canada and look what's happened here they're everywhere are they <laughs> yeah we we have some weird animals in australia too like you did do. you know we export camels Pardon me? Australia exports camels. 
the cigarette brand? No, like the animals. To um, you guys make you guys make camels in yeah, Australia to the Middle Eastern countries. Really? Yeah, we export camels. So is that that must not be an indigenous species? It's just uh, you know what I actually don't know the answer to that. I was just thinking about that as we were speaking. I don't know the answer. I'm I I feel like no. Don't so know why. Before we get off the topic that. of Australia, a little fun fact for you. Did you know that about 70% of koalas have chlamydia? I didn't know that. <laughs> I did. My girlfriend told me that uh, like shortly after we got together, and I didn't believe her. I was like, yeah, yeah. Ha, ha, you like, <laughs> it, it took her about a year to get fed up enough to prove it to me. Like, to How does one proof. prove that? Well, you find proof. You find the, in, the internet. Says, Wikipedia. Sure, you're right. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah why? I, Those I poor know. things. Well, they're kind of terrible animals. So. Um, yeah, so you're, you're stressed out about shipping, I guess? Like, you're just getting oh, used yeah. to it again. No, I mean, I've, I did it for years, all right. the shipping. And then I handed it off, and I was like, ah, yes, never again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I still had to manage a lot of it. Right. Anytime there was any issues, or... Because all inevitably issues never happen during during the day <laughs> that always happen at like night or on the weekend right i mean it's it's shipping through like a standard like a a carrier like dhl we is what who you, we use mm-hmm. so you rarely can actually do anything so when i say there you know problem comes up it's me checking incessantly checking the tracking and then seeing that there's you know it's being delayed and then oh, wow. me wanting to call them and be like why is the package delayed <laughs> yeah and they're I like guess i don't know higher value items like yours then I, I don't know it sounds like you should just let go and let i do i have call you when now. something's really wrong you know? yeah and the only thing is customers then tend you know they they can panic you know they look at they follow the tracking and they go hey my guitar is delayed so what i've taken to doing yeah. being like i've taken to do is or, what I've been doing is I follow the tracking. If I see a delay come up, I can, I've gotten to the point where now I can sort of recognize what, a, like if it's a serious delay or if it's just right. like, you know, we, one thing I learned is we put, we put fragile stickers mm. on the guitar boxes, mm-hmm. obviously that can hold them up because right. they've got a special part in the plane. DHL ships air by air. They have a special part in the plane where they put, uh, Anything fragile packages. Interesting. So if that part of the plane is full, then it gets delayed. Right. It goes on to the next plane. So now what I do is I, I watch the tracking. If I see something come up, I'll message or I email the client and just say, hey, I noticed that there's a delay. This isn't a big, this is a pretty common delay. I think we should see some movement in the next day or two. Um, blah, blah, blah. Right. Interesting. But yeah, so now I've got to make the boxes, pack the guitar up, make all the documents, right. uh, schedule the pickup. It takes time. It yeah. just takes time. Kind of, kind of like I have to ship like four guitars this week, and it's going to take me an entire day probably. Sounds oh, wow. ridiculous, but Jeez. it just will. Sounds like you need some software to help you. Automated, like filling out the. Uh declaration for the woods and all that kind of stuff you just well so yeah i did actually i didn't make software but i I use google docs and Mm -hmm. i i put all my documents in one google doc um spreadsheet rather right and 
they all I have to do is fill out the commercial invoice and it auto fills it auto populates all the like other documents that's beautiful but that's tabs. the right amount of automation yeah so uh it's it works pretty good because the commercial invoice is basically all the pertinent information right um and it you know i'm not missing anything right. as long as i fill out the commercial invoice everything else gets filled in beautiful yeah it works good so it took me a while to figure it, actually passing the job off to an employee is mm. what motivated me to do that because I kept having to just, just like make check all all the documents for mistakes, right? And keep finding them and yeah. One thing that's interesting, I think, in business, it's hard to be the right kind of lazy, <laughs> right? Like you need to be the kind of lazy where you're willing to do more work now to save yourself repetitive work later. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's also very easy to be lazy where you just never make the process better and you just do the shit process. Yeah. You get used to it. Yes. You hate it, but you can get the job done. Yeah. Um, I, uh, years ago, um, I did a guitar making course where I like lived at this guitar makers in his, like at his house oh, in his wow. basement in Quebec right. for five weeks and right. built an acoustic guitar. And I kept being like, how'd you figure this out? Like, how'd you learn this? How did you, I would ask him. Mm -hmm. He'd be like, oh, I'm just lazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, he, he like had some, I, I, I was, when I started building guitars, I was more interested in how you make the stuff that makes guitars. How do you make mm -hmm. a mold for a, a acoustic guitar body? Right. How do you make a fret slotting template? Um, and how do you, you know, like jigs and fixtures. And he had all these clever jigs and fixtures. And I was like, how did you figure that out? And his whole thing was like, he was sick of doing it by hand. He was sick of taking mm -hmm. a, a ruler and marking out the fret slot locations. And then, you know, so he like made a template. Right. Uh, yeah, totally. It's simple. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound that impressive. But especially when you're first learning uh, how to do something, those are the things that, that really are exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Like, you have to pick your time to do them, right? Because doing them too early, then you might have to redo them a bunch of times, and that'll mm -hmm. cost you a lot of time. But like doing them too late, and it'll cumulatively, cumulatively, whatever, cost you a lot of time. You know. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. I do feel like th that right now, actually, where it's like we have, we've been in that state where we've been producing guitars the way we've been doing it for a while. Mm. And we need some fresh processes. We, we right. need to take that next step into, um, you know, efficiency. Well, but you're doing efficiency. that with the Haas, right? It, yes, that is definitely uh, a big step uh, for us. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, we were talking about, like, our tool paths. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if it was on the podcast or not. Um, and how some of them are kind of not nice. <laughs> right. And it's just because it's like we have so many things to tackle. This is working for now. Like yep. we'll just leave it, and then it's not doing any damage. Maybe tool life is not as good. Uh, it's noisier, or something like that. But so it's kind of funny, actually. So I've been working on the kitchen knife mm -hmm. on my kitchen knife, which is exciting, and I'm I feel like I'm making some progress, which is nice. And you know, I'm having to do some stuff differently because um, I would say about a third of the kitchen knife is thinner than 25 thousandths. 
Wow. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, because the, the blade is quite big um, mm-hmm. and it's very thin and it's all hardened steel. So getting the tool paths, they, like it, it's hard to get them right, especially for the second side where you're machining all of that really thin steel. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the parts I was really struggling with was cutting the edge. Because the spine side of the knife is going to be thicker. I'm going to be leaving tabs and then doing a second operation to cut it to final size and leave the tabs. But I I don't get a second chance to cut the edge. I need to cut that right to dimension on the first try, right? Right. And so I've been trying all this stuff. I was, you know, trying to like ramp in slowly and leave tabs and then come back and cut the tabs away. And I was like burning the edge and horrible screeching noises and like... um. I was cutting such a thin foil, like it was leaving such a thin layer that then the edge would just flex out of the way and I couldn't oh, cut yeah. anymore. I just <laughs> ended up with this like foil, you know? Um, so I actually pulled a page out of your book. I was like, I wonder what happens if I just plunge straight in <laughs> and cut in a single pass along the whole edge. Because the- I was like in my mind, okay, like theoretically that means that all of the material that's there in front of the cut as I as I progress should support the cut. Okay. Right? And it worked. First time. <laughs> worked perfectly. Like, <laughs> no chattering, no noise at all. Beautiful. That's you great. Know? So sometimes doing the dumb thing is the right thing. <laughs> you know? Well, okay, so I asked Mark about, about it because, you know, we're doing our post-finish routes. We're plunging through lacquer and wood mm-hmm. to, to um, route uh, like a, a hole or a, a pocket. Right. And I we talked about this before, but I mentioned to him again. I was like, you know, it's like a pretty violent plunge. Like, can we ramp that? Can we like spiral in? And he was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Like, we can do that. Like, the thought though was, the faster we get through that material, it's soft material. The mm. faster we get through it, the less chance we have of the ch- the chips from that um getting underneath the paint, the lacquer, and. Right. In pulling that up or tearing it out, so the idea is to just get the material, move the material away as fast as possible. Mm, interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, which is kind of the same in your situation, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was the part that I was kind of leery about is plunging. So I'm like plunging straight through ten thousandths of an inch of hardened steel. Right. Yeah. True. Um, and it did make a bit of a heat circle around where I plunged, mm. um, but that area is actually I've done. Um, a ch- tangential extension. So the cut that I'm making is actually longer than the edge. So that part that's getting heat damaged is actually away from the edge. Okay. So and is that going to cause any other issues though? Like up to the, like tool life? Yeah, it might. So I think what I probably will do is like helically bore a little hole and then use that as my entry hole as like a pre-drill hole. So I'll plunge through that hole and then cut from there. Okay. So you interpolate interpolate a little hole. Yeah. And then and then enter that do a second then... toolpath and plunge right in the middle of it. Um, yeah. So the, the other thing I've been doing on that second side, because I'm doing a whole bunch of 3D contouring on, again, really thin metal, it was screeching. It was like really vibrating, you know, building up this horrible um, screech. So what I've done is just pack the underside of it with modeling clay. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you're going to do that. How's that working? Works great. Works perfectly. No, no screeching at all. Um, and the interesting thing is because of the way I'm fixturing it. So when you're tabbing parts out, 
if you fixture them in a vice or with pit bulls or anything that's pressing in, mm. then as soon as you cut through the material, you lose all of your holding force. Right. Because the material pressing against anything. Anymore. Yeah, it just becomes a big spring. Right. Right. So on this one, I specifically designed all the fixturing so that I'm clamping straight down. I've got um, bolts around the periphery of the part and I'm bolting down instead. Right. Um, and that has the second advantage that when I'm using the modeling clay, it, it makes it really easy to make sure that I'm squishing the modeling clay down and not distorting, like not ending up with the part in the wrong Z um, place. What, gives you, what, what indicates that to you? That the uh, modeling clay gets like squeezes out? No, just that it like the part that um, the steel stock ends up flush on the on the um, fixture. Okay. But the problem is when you're using like a vice or pit bulls, there's more inward force than there is downward force, and that means you have to like squish the modeling clay by hand, you know. And it could be um, kind of fussy to get like enough modeling clay in there that it's making contact, mm -hmm. but not too much that you can't squish it out of the way by hand, right? You know. Whereas with the bolts, like I can exert thousands of pounds of force on there. So the model of clay just flows underneath, fills that cavity. Done, you know? Um, so yeah, very hilariously low-tech solution to this problem. That's great. Yeah. Um, the only thing that's been bugging me is that, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but like, I, so I have two Fidals. I have a VMC 15 and a VMC 10. And mechanically and electrically, electrically the VMC-10 and the VMC-15 are identical, just the VMC-10 doesn't have an enclosure. That right. was the difference. And one and one of them, the handle jogs different direction. Yes, yeah, <laughs> which is very annoying. Um, but for some reason, um, the servo... So, like, the servo motors on the two machines are the same, identical. The servo drives on the two machines are the same. But for some reason, the VMC-10 won't reliably cut above 70 inches a minute. Like sometimes when I'm doing a 3D contouring toolpath and I'm, you know, changing directions multiple times, it'll fault out. But the VMC-10, I can run like 160 inches a minute and it's fine. Um, Did you opt for high-speed machining? <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, one of the interesting things about Fidals is they don't have any options. Like if... The only way that there's an option is if there's hardware that you didn't buy. Like, okay. you can turn everything else on and off in the control. Right. No, Any software. To unlock, yeah. Um, and I have no idea. Like, That's... I've been retuning servos. I've been doing all sorts of crazy shit. And most of the time it'll work. But then, you know, at some random point in the program, it'll fault. So do you think it's hardware or software? I think it's hardware. And I, I think at this point there must be some faulty component, but I don't think that it's a single servo drive because the fault will randomly happen on the X, Y, or Z axes. It's not like it's always one drive, um, axis that's faulting out. Um, you know, so I'm wondering whether it's like, so there's like a big um, bridge uh, rectifier that converts the AC voltage to DC voltage for the servo cards. And then there's a big capacitor that smooths out that rectified voltage. You know, I'm wondering whether the cap has gone slightly bad and the mm -hmm. voltage is dropping um, or whether like the rectifier or like 
the circuit breaker before the rectifier is slightly bad or there's like a, a loose connection or something. There has to be something weird going on. Um, and I think that the servos aren't getting the current that they need. Uh, you know, you're getting a voltage drop, which means that the servos can't keep up anymore. And then you get a following error and then that causes the control to give you a motor overload error. Um, so it is erroring, erroring out or is it just going slow? No, it's erroring out. Okay. Yeah. That's annoying. Yeah. It's super annoying and it really shouldn't be happening. So it's, it's a bit frustrating. How frequent, <laughs> how frequently is it happening? If I run toolpaths at 120 inches a minute, it happens, you know, within the first 15, 20 minutes of running a program, but uh, never at the same place. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, it's very frustrating. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've been um, talking to a lovely guy by the name of David DeCarson, who is Dave DeCarson Jr., who is the son of one of the original guys that started the Fidal company. Right. Um, and he runs a company that supplies Fidal spare parts and also does a control retrofit for Fidal's. And even he is stumped. Like he and I have been working together to try and work out all the possible causes of this thing. Um, and it's definitely nothing obvious. Weird. And nobody's like, I've, you've been on the forums. I imagine nobody's got any suggestions. I haven't posted specifically about this in a while. I mentioned it in passing a couple of years ago and other people were like, Oh, that's weird. <laughs> but I didn't have another machine to compare it against. So I didn't know for sure that it wasn't, something that i was doing you know whereas now i have another fidal to compare it against i'm like oh, okay this is definitely strange you know? so it's millie that's it causing millie. problems yeah it's the, the original the, the original damn and if it was just on one axis then you'd be like okay maybe the axis is binding like maybe the ball screw is not aligned properly and right. sometimes it's drawing too much current and the server's faulting out um you know maybe it's a servo drive maybe it's a bad servo but it's not just one axis it's randomly right. one of the axes or oh, sometimes so two axes at once. So yeah, it's very strange. Hmm. Well, I don't know. The only thing I can do is, is get under the hood myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're welcome to come around and help me anytime. <laughs> Lazy bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, apart from that, uh, how's the other machine though? Great. So what are you using um, Millie for versus, I forget the name of the other Vicky. one. Vicky. Vicky's the other one, the VMC-15. Um, Vicky, the VMC-15, is running my hunting knife, so the Resolute. Um, that's what she does day in and day out. Okay. Um, and Millie is going, in the short term, is going to be dedicated to the kitchen knife and pickup work. So right. um, machining raw materials, doing sheaths, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Like I have um all of my work holding is on pallets. Um yeah. on, on fixture plates. And the fixture plates are interchangeable between the two machines. Um and I will be doing my absolute best to also keep the tool magazine in both machines set up identically and using cool. the same tools. So theoretically I should be able to pull a job off either machine, put it on the other one and run it. That's really cool. Um, yeah, I think a lot of production facilities do that. 
sort of thing. Like I know I talked to the one of the engineers at Fender, mm-hmm. and he said that that's how they're set up. Right. Yeah, all the machines are set up identically. Yeah, at the very least, they all have a say, the same palette base. Right. Uh, and maybe I don't I don't know about tooling. Maybe well, they but that, at least swap. that means you could like chuck in. You could you know fairly quickly change all the tooling from one exactly. machine into another machine. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is is really cool. Uh, and what else was I going to say about that? Um, it makes sense from a, a redundancy standpoint. Like you can't have, you know, the possibility of one machine going down for a week or two potentially, and then you just can't run some of your products during that time. Right. Um, so yeah, like going forward, because Fidels are so inexpensive, like I would like to get a better surface finish off my machines. Right now I'm not quite getting the surface finish that I might get off a brand new Haas, for instance, right? Yeah. So. I'm looking into like retrofit controls, that kind of stuff. In the future, um, you know, if I can work out an inexpensive retrofit, then what I might end up doing is still getting multiple fidals and having one fidal dedicated per product. Um, That's a great idea. Or potentially a fidal dedicated per material. You know, so I might have fidal dedicated for machining composites, another one dedicated for doing um, steel, like hard milling. Then you could start uh, getting paid for your scrap. Yeah, or recycling it oh, yeah. um, in-house. Oh, like making your own steel. Yeah. You lunatic. Making my own composites. That's actually something that I'm looking at at the moment. Crazy. Should be fun. Should I start saving my beer cans for you to melt down to? <laughs> Into aluminum? One day, man. One day. <laughs> uh, I, there's a guitar maker that I know that's actually... He just posted about it on Instagram. He makes... Mm an aluminum, like a cast aluminum bridge for his guitars. And he was like, uh, he said something about saving up all his aluminum cans. Right. Like, and is he actually doing it? I'm, I should ask him. It, it would be interesting. I mean, aluminum cans are the wrong type of aluminum for machining. But, <laughs> well, um, he's not machining shit. He's just casting it and then probably oh. filing it. He's not, he's not, he, he's not a CNC guy at all. Right, so he's just like investment casting them, or like yeah. lost wax or something. Yeah, uh, something uh, sand sand casting them, I think. Mm, and then, um, yeah, and then probably just filing it. Perfect. So, would aluminum work for aluminum cans? Work for that? Uh, it should do. The one interesting thing with aluminum cans when you're trying to melt them is because they have a really high surface area because they're very thin. Mm-hmm. You lose a lot of them to oxidation. Right, like you lose a really high percentage. Um, yeah, like they'll just burn up, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my understanding is like if you crush them like a lot, that helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you start with a puddle of aluminum and then feed cans into it, okay. then they liquefy really quickly. Right. The problem with doing that is if any of the cans have water in them, oh yeah, you'll get an explosion <laughs> of molten aluminum. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. It just spatters. Yeah, like basically you get a, a situation where you're forcing water under the surface of the aluminum. It flashes right. to steam and then blows out all of the liquid aluminum all over you. Right. Um, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, and I remember seeing a post where a guy lost a couple of toes to that. Oof. Granted, he was doing aluminum casting in Crocs. Yeah, anything in Crocs is bad. 
Yeah, um, safety Crocs are not <laughs> safety. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my rubber-toed uh, <laughs> boots. Yeah. Or maybe it wasn't Crocs. Maybe it was just flip-flops. Actually, I think it was just mm. flip-flops. Safety, A fashion, flip-flops. and safety faux pas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Any like, uh, yeah. Speaking of safety and explosions, do you want to talk about space? <laughs> um, explosions in space count me in yeah right can things explode in space Aaron they can it's a vacuum so they can I, I don't think it's quite as um, exciting as when it happens on the ground because uh, like what would happen what would actually happen if because if, there's no oxygen up there how would an explosion really well, it's only it would only happen if you had like fuel and oxidize it together, which you know, luckily, rockets tend to carry a lot of both. Okay, <laughs> so you can definitely get explosions, but then because you're in a vacuum, you don't get a pressure wave. Like one of the most damaging things you know on Earth when an explosion happens is you get a big pressure wave, and that that pressure wave can you know pulp your brain, for Ooh. instance, burst your eardrums, pop your eyeballs, all sorts of fun things, right? But um, because there's no atmosphere to transmit a pressure wave in space, um, you really don't get much of a propagation of that explosion. Like the the effect is pretty limited, unless you get hit by shrapnel. Because the shrapnel can just go forever. You right. could be like a hundred kilometers away from an explosion and then get shrapnel in the face, like in that movie Gravity. I haven't seen it with Brad Pitt. I haven't seen no, it, man. George Clooney. George Clooney. Yeah, you know what? Uh, something about watching someone slowly die in space for two hours that just doesn't appeal to me. For real? I would have thought you'd been all over that. <laughs> no, not really. Funnily enough. Uh, there's another one, another movie like that, uh, um, where someone gets loft, left behind at sea. Yes. Yeah. When they're snorkeling. And oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not into it. Yeah, that one's depressing. I, I haven't seen that movie. That's, I mean, that just sounds depressing. <laughs> so, yeah. Not into it. Uh, on more exciting news, upbeat news, SpaceX this week launched um, one of their rideshare missions uh-huh. where they send a whole bunch of small satellites into space on a single Dragon um, rocket. So, so if they, you're a company that wants to send a satellite to space, you can just... Yeah, you can just... like You can literally go to their website and they have a rideshare sign-up page. <laughs> and you can just be like, yeah, please contact me and I want to sign up. Um, and it's a million dollars for a 200 kilogram satellite, okay. which sounds like a lot, right? But yeah. if you wanted to launch 200 kilograms to space on the space shuttle, it would have cost $11 million. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's a bargain. It is. Yeah, it really is a bargain. Um, and they launched 88 satellites in a single launch. Wow. How much yeah. does that launch cost them? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I one would assume they're making money. Yeah, um, it's 88 million bucks. Yeah, because my understanding is like a million dollars is like the minimum. Right. I don't think that they do less than that. You can pay more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like $5,000 a kilogram over 200 kilos. Um, but yeah, amazing that they're able to, to do that, you know? Um, and it, it makes like like you know a relatively small company could have hardware in orbit yeah it's pretty crazy this is like the beginning of you know 
commercialized space flight. Like I mean, accessible commercialized space flight. Yes, definitely more accessible for sure. Um, like, but you know, there's there's people out there with a million bucks that are just walking around. <laughs> right. Could you send well, something other than a satellite up? I guess anything's a satellite once it's up there. Like I yeah, I mean, there are rules. I think you know you can't just send a block of concrete. So. <laughs> <laughs> Why the fuck not? Well, um, have you ever heard of a kinetic impactor weapon? No. So there's a whole lot of like international treaties about not putting weapons in space mm -hmm. because, you know, when it's you put weapons in space, you've got access to, you know, anywhere on the planet, potentially quite fast. Um, and one of the interesting things you can do when you have stuff in space is that like, so one thing that the US military did during the Iraq war is that, um, Saddam Hussein was putting tanks in like urban built up areas and you can't like drop a big bomb on a tank that's in a, a civilian neighborhood. Right? Mm -hmm. So what they did instead was take one of their big bombs, take all the explosives out of it, fill it with concrete and then just drop a bomb full of concrete on a tank. <laughs> um, Still fucks the tank up. Oh yeah. Yeah. So imagine what happens if you do that from space. Right. It's a bullet basically. Yeah, so basically the, the whole idea of like a kinetic impactor from space is you take a big, really dense mass that will survive re-entry intact. Uh -huh. Like, for instance, a huge block of solid tungsten carbide. Okay. Or, a, you know, a dart, like a, literally like a, you know, darts in the pub, but you make it 10 feet long and made out of tungsten carbide. Lawn darts. There you go. Perfect. And drop it from space onto a bunker or something, right? And... Once you get one big enough, you start approaching explosions similar in yield to a small nuclear weapon. Without any explosive material yeah. inside of it? Yeah, just because you're going so fast and hitting the ground it's so hard. It's kind of like a meteor. Yeah, like when that thing hits the ground, it all of that energy turns into heat, which turns the entire projectile into like plasma, which then expands rapidly like in an explosion you know Whoa. exactly like a meteor so yeah i'm sure that if you were like i want to send a giant tungsten lawn dart into <laughs> orbit they'd be like no right and for good reason <laughs> but like if you said it was like five thousand dollars a kilogram <laughs> well, above like, above a million if i bucks, put my million yeah. bucks down can i send yeah. like an etch-a-sketch into space and just have it floating about Maybe I mean SpaceX sent a Tesla in right. space with so, somebody with so, like something inside of it, right? Like a a mannequin. Yeah, there's a mannequin, and it was playing David Bowie or something. <laughs> you know, like um. So what did they, did they get it back? No, no, they just sent it. It's still off floating into up the there, universe. or is is it in a, in orbit? I would have to look it up. I it either just was supposed to slowly leave the solar system. Or it was supposed to impact on Mars. And I can't remember which one of those two. Oh, cool. Um, he just left way, it yes. up there. He's parking cool. it for later. <laughs> I'll come <laughs> get it. Drop it with a big parachute onto Mars. Um, that's crazy. So, yeah. rideshare. Yeah. I mean, ride I shares. used to have rideshare. Right? To work or? Just, yeah, for the business. When we didn't have cars. Mm -hmm. So now you could do it to space. So I can relate. <laughs> Oh, God.
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, as I said, I think it's, I will, as you said, actually, like making space more accessible is super cool. Um, you know, there are universities sending small sats into space now. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. There's lots more interesting, like, research getting done. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how he was funding this and whether they, I don't know whether or not they were using their own satellites, but. I know that George Clooney <laughs> had oh, a company that was monitoring um, international buildups of like tanks and stuff oh. as like a third party impartial watchdog for like potential kind of like subversive military actions around wow. the world. Um, yeah. You know, like it's pretty crazy that like a civilian could be like, I'm going to start a company that does reconnaissance from space in order to make sure that like to, to monitor can... my own government <laughs> or yeah other and, governments. and and other people's governments you know like nobody will commit a war crime because we're trying to watch everything yeah it's very interesting george Clooney. also he has a uh, tequila company does he yeah so maybe he's monitoring his tequila fields they uh, so, agave fields. celebrities doing weird companies is just strange like um Keanu Reeves has a, uh, like a custom motorcycle. That's right. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, pretty nifty. It's too bad he's not a guitar guy, right? You just be like, we'll call it uh, Keanu guitar. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's weird stuff. I um, I had a <laughs> I had a bit of a bad week last week. Uh, obviously, because yeah. we talked on Tuesday, but it didn't get any better really because I got my second dose of the vaccine. Oh, and I don't know you? whether you've hit. I felt like I'd been in a street fight. For real? lost. I was, yeah, I was in rough shape for two oh. days after that. My girlfriend was too. Next day, she had like massive migraines and like could barely move. I, f like my whole body hurt. That's I interesting. felt like someone had punched me in every part of my body. <laughs> but um, you know what? Now you're double Things vaxxed. Up now. Yeah, man. I got mine last Wednesday. Uh, and you were fine, I bet. Well, that's when we spoke. We spoke on Wednesday. Yeah, right. I got mine at noon or 12.50. Mm. Didn't feel a thing. Interesting. It's. I think it's very up and down for all, all different people. Yeah, right? Tim Tim said he felt like a little shitty and took like a Tylenol cold and flu. Mm. Catherine, my wife, she didn't feel anything. Um, both of our employees uh, did feel something. And right. Took a sick day. <laughs> yeah, of course they did. I would too not, if I was getting paid sick days. I'm not. Uh, I'm not chirping. <clears throat> um, <laughs> no, it's funny though. Like, because we were like Tim and I were like, of course we didn't feel anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, I've heard a lot of people feeling that way. Um, Mark felt shit too. Yeah. Well, no? you know what? Uh, the the upside of feeling shit is that like you know it's doing something. Oh yeah, I mean I. Uh, the first time I got it, I didn't feel a thing. And I was like, I closed my eyes when they gave it to me. And then I was like, <laughs> did they give it to me? Yeah, exactly. You know, I should have looked. I had some like insane, like fear that they're just like, <laughs> this guy took sympathy on me because I was so nervous about getting it that he just like, he just That's poked funny. me in the arm with his finger. <laughs> you and I are very similar, I think in terms of our irrational fears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's, uh, the other thing is like, 
so like they the guys took each took a sick day. If you're gonna be feel like shit and you're like not gonna be able to perform well, you're better off just staying at home. It's yeah. a bit of a recharge sometimes too, and uh, I believe in mental health days as well. 100%. Well, I don't know if you've ever said this to your employees, but when Mike was working for me, I said to him, like, if you're feeling shitty, like, don't come into work and screw stuff up. Like, yeah. please just stay home. You know, yeah. like. Well, so that's interesting. I mean, Tim and I were talking about this recently. We've, it's been a tough couple of weeks. Like, we're, we're just, we're really focused and we're really trying to get work done, mm-hmm. make the, make things happen. And that, that's a bit stressful. And we're, we, our, that energy comes out. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking today and we we're like, I You guys think, are dicks is what you're saying. Well, you know, I think we're not. I think we're pretty nice <laughs> to the guys. Like I would imagine, sorry. Yeah. You're, you're pretty you guys are pretty chill. We are probably too chill. Um <laughs> right. but uh it's having that atmosphere, an atmosphere where th- like if we're stressed, then everyone's stressed probably mm. isn't good for uh work culture. So nope. we were like, we need, we need to do something. We need to like have a like little work party or something like that where you like mm. order pizza or like go fuck throw the Frisbee around in the park or it's down the street. Something yeah, totally. To, and that energizes people. It'll yeah, energize Culture me. is important. Culture is important. In the we also have to get shit done and there's not enough time in the day, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's something we've been thinking about because this past three weeks has, have just been kind of like just heads down grinding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think it's, I think that morale is catching up with us. The, the lag in morale. Right. So have you guys organized a pizza day or are you? No, yeah. We literally up? just talked about this like today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in all the companies I've worked for in the past, I've always been, I've always ended up as like morale officer. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so a company I worked for fairly recently, tech company, when I got there, so I was part of a team of six people, all really great people, but like no one ate lunch together. Ah. Uh-huh. You know, like lunchtime would come around, everyone would just go their separate ways and like eat with other people in the company or like go somewhere and literally sit down and eat pizza by themselves. Yeah. And not because they really wanted to, but just because there was no culture of you know, people being like, hey, where are you going for lunch? You know? Right. And within like four weeks of me being there, I was just like, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here too much, but I'm very much like, hey, let's go have pizza. You know, like, let's whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do like team lunches once a week. And, you know, and I, the team really gelled after that. That's know? great. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like, I really don't want to be actual lead of a team i've done that before and i hate it um so i tend to go into like technical lead positions Mm. and in that case thankfully um the actual team lead he and i got along really well and we kind of ended up becoming like co-leads you know right where you guys Um, each have a strength in in leadership that are different from each other's yeah exactly um and he was not really great on the like team spirit morale side of things but he was really good on the like technical um like you know overwatch of the tech team from a technical side right so yeah we we kind of bounced that role back and forth between us um and it worked out great you know he got what he wanted which he was more interested in the technical side he's not really interested in the soft side of of team management right 
and I was more interested in making sure the team was happy. And you know, it, it makes a really big difference to have a team that that gels. It does. I mean, we we definitely try to keep things light and lively around here mm-hmm. with like conversation and stuff. But uh, there's it, it's hard to get those do those sorts of, sorts of things like go out for lunch. You know, like yeah. we all we kind of all take lunch at different times. Yeah, and it's hard in a small company where. Like maybe someone needs to be keeping things running or yeah you know, or whatever, but yeah, it's it doesn't like it just doesn't work sometimes where like maybe I'm just making excuses. We probably should just make more of an effort. To, maybe to I should come it. be your morale officer. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a minute for uh, a listener question, please? Yeah, well, let's do it. All right, so. Patterson Blades on Instagram reached out to me during the week um, and was asking about my resin printer. So he said, cool. are you happy with your resin 3D printer so far? Do you think it's worth it to buy one of the larger models, like an Elegoo Satin? Um, he says he would mostly be using it for little odds and ends and some handle prototyping. So just for like the fit and feel of a handle. Cool. Uh, handles, you know, handle scales or like the, ni- the whole handle in one piece. Um, he says, I think it'd be interesting to have the high resolution of a resin printer. So I've had my resin printer for a couple of months now, and I was really excited about it when I first got it, and I used it a lot, and I haven't touched it in like two months. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of reasons. Like one, the resin is stinky and messy, and like most people talking about resin printers will warn you about that. What's the smell? What does it smell like? Um... It smells like raw epoxy or something. Right. You right. know, like the the stink definitely differs between different types of resins. Like some don't smell at all. Some smell really bad. Um, and then after you've printed, there's a whole bunch of like post-processing. You have to like wash the excess resin off. You have to cure it, etc. cetera. Um, the problem for me was that aesthetics... So the aesthetics of that printer weren't good enough to replace something like SLS printing. Like if I send it out and they like, um, you know, do selective laser sintering with nylon powder, those prints look really, really good. And the resin printer is close, but not quite as good. Hmm. So I couldn't quite um, replace it. And then one of the other issues was that all of the parts that I would potentially make to go out for customers are um, parts that would see wear, you know, like that would get rubbed up against things or whatever. And one thing I found with resin prints is that they kind of like, when they get scuffed, they end up like powdery. Hmm. Um, it's kind of, it looks almost like a, a plastic that's been left in the sun for a while. You know how it kind of like the surface like powders up. Um so like I couldn't use it for sheaths or anything because it ends up leaving this like powdery residue after it starts wearing. Um, so yeah, for me, it didn't really fall into a sweet spot. Like I don't really have a need for um, like super detailed aesthetic prints that I then end up like casting or I'm using them as aesthetic prototypes or something. Right. Um, it, it can, sorry, doesn't, don't, doesn't the resin go bad? Not as far as I know. I've actually left some resin in the tank in my printer for the last two months. And 
I haven't tried printing with it, but it still <laughs> looks fine. Um, and, you know, maybe you're not supposed to do that, but, you know, I don't want to have to deal with something that's, like, super finicky and I have to, like, worry about the resin, blah, 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 you know. How much better is the is it, like, the, as the resolution versus uh, just... Uh, an FDM printer, yeah. like a plastic printer. It is a lot better. Okay. Um, and one of the things that's worth noting is... So the less expensive printers that we're talking about in this case, so like my printer was like 250 bucks and it uses an LCD screen underneath the resin to expose the resin. And that means that it has like discrete pixels. You know, when you're going from one layer to the next, if there's, so like imagine if you were printing a really stout pyramid, you know, it, it's like two inches wide, but it's only half an inch tall. Mm -hmm. So it has like a really shallow angle on the top. Because it can't print in between pixels, what you'll end up happening is like discrete steps on that top surface, um, which is a little bit similar to what you would get with like a, an FDM printer, a plastic printer. Um, and for a lot of the stuff that I print, that is enough of an issue to make it not necessarily a great solution. Gotcha. You might um, as well be printing it with, um, with FDM. FDM. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the material properties of resin prints are not as reliable as FDM. And I have noticed more creep, which means if you put them under load for an extended period of time, they tend to deform um, to, you know, so if you had like a spring and you kept it under tension for a while, it would just end up not expanding anymore. Um, so for me personally, so like, you know, we're talking, Patterson Blades is talking about like prototyping, um, you know, how a handle feels, you know, I don't think there's going to be any benefit to right. resin. And I think that the cost is going to be higher. It's going to be messier and finickier and you can get the gist of it from, from, you know, yeah, a rough FDM print. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of benefit there. Yeah. In my mind, the benefits are like, if you have a small-ish part that doesn't have um, really tight aesthetic requirements or really high strength requirements, then you can potentially print a bunch of parts on a resin printer in one go very, very quickly, unattended, you know, overnight. Like if you had like some little washer or some little jig or, you know, something, um, the resin printer I found worked really well for that. Like you can do small-scale production really, really quickly. Um, and the type of printer, the, those LCD resin printers, the fact that you're buying an LCD printer is actually really important because it means every layer, regardless of how full it is, takes a constant amount of time to print. Right, whereas if you're printing like 10 things on an FDM printer, that takes way longer. <laughs> you know. Whereas printing one thing or 10 things on a resin printer, if they all fit on the build plate at the same time, takes the same amount of time. Hmm. It just depends on how tall they are. That's the only thing that determines the print time. How is it depositing like the, uh, the material? The material. The so resin. you have a, a vat of liquid resin. Mm -hmm. um, and on the bottom of the vat, there's a, it's transparent, right? And right. then you have an LCD screen underneath and UV light shining through. So what happens is there's a build plate that comes down into the resin and almost contacts 
the window at the bottom just leaves it like you know a 0.1 millimeter gap and the uv light shines through and cures a layer of resin which adheres to the build plate and to the window but the window is made out of a really slippery transparent plastic um called fep (laughs) um and basically it it pulls up and the fep actually um stretches like a drum skin like literally like a drum skin and that stretching motion allows it to peel away from the cured resin which creates a gap and the rest of the resin rushes in because it's a liquid to fill that gap and then the the build plate moves up and down to clear to stir the resin around and then it it goes down again and leaves a tiny little gap and then cures the next layer wild yeah i'm so looking super at one clever in my hands process. right right now too um, uh like a resin printed a resin part? printed part mm-hmm. and it's just wild yeah they're super super cool um and yeah if you had like you know a dozen if you had a part that's like you know one inch by one inch by three inches or something you can fit a bunch of them onto a build plate you can print them all in one shot it works really nicely for that but for me it just it doesn't seem like it's a good fit and i'm not 100 sure whether i'm gonna actually keep my resin printer Mm. so i mean um patterson if you're looking for a resin printer i know a guy (laughs) has one yeah exactly i'll give you actually i won't give you a discount full price (laughs) Um, my, my cut there you go. Perfect. Plus 10%. Yeah. I mean, I think for a workshop, honestly, um, an FDM printer is really, really nice to have. Resin printer, meh. Cool. I, I haven't found want, a lot yeah. of uses for one yet. The resin printer, printer to me seems like, for my purposes, would be maybe a little too much effort and too messy. But I love mm. the idea of having something that you can do some rapid prototyping with. This is interesting. So for you guys, let's say you wanted to print like custom control knobs for your guitars. Resin printer would be fantastic for that because right. you could print um, like the threads in the cross hole for the set screw. Right. You could print those and they would work. You know, after a bit of tuning, they would work out of the printer. Yeah, I guess Whereas I'm not like really this... thinking about it in a production sense. But Mark right. and I have talked about it because he's got a resin printer uh, about doing like switch tips for... Um, control switches mm. right there's my compressor um <laughs> but for my for my sake like I, I don't think i have time to do all that like what you're saying is like you've right. got to um clean it and i don't know whatever else hassles you've got around owning one of these things whereas the the other print style of printer just seems way more maintenance free yeah am i wrong i mean the maintenance with an fdm printer can be a bit more unexpected you know like your nozzle clogs randomly or or something but um if you're printing like one material all the time and you have a good setup then yeah it could be basically zero you just have to like scrape the build plate every once in a while or after every print and that's it you know Um, it seems like there's a lot of goop with the resin printer yeah, there really is. And I thought it would be not too bad. Um, you know, if you don't give a shit about using, you know, six pairs of disposable gloves in a day right. and like <laughs> throwing out tons of paper and, and stirring sticks and whatever, then it's it's more manageable for sure. Right. But like if you're trying to minimize waste 
and garbage, then it's yeah, it, it can be a real pain. Uh, it is crazy though. I'm like looking at this part closer than I've ever looked at it before, and it was a prototype <laughs> of a, a bridge that Mark made on his uh, resin printer. And right on the the, it's got like a structure that's holding the part up. That's like yes, yeah, the supports, the, the supports, and the plate that it's sitting on. That the resin plate that he built it up on. Mm-hmm. He wrote it's we called this part the wrap the lefty wrap bridge and he actually on the resin on the plate wrote mm. wrap bridge lefty right in the 3D model in the 3D model and it's v- extremely legible the the resolution is amazing right you know i think one of the coolest potential uses for a resin 3D printer in a small shop is to do investment casting right because you can buy resins that um, are specifically designed for zero ash burnout, which means that, so you basically, you 3D print something like your bridge, right? And then you cure it, all the, all the normal stuff. And then you dip the whole print, potentially even with the support structure included, into um, like a liquid plaster solution to form like the, the, the first part of the, the, the mold, mm-hmm. right? Then you put it in sand. Then you put it in a burnout oven and actually melt all of that plastic out. Mm. And then you just pour molten aluminum or whatever in. And the surface finish that you can, and the tolerances that you can um, get doing that are potentially like straight out of the machine, cut uh, straight out of the, car, the mold rather, cut off the supports, um, you know, maybe use like um, glass beads in a sandblasting cabinet to blast away the, um, like the plaster of the mold material. And then, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you could potentially mold like screw threads and oh, all cool. sorts of crazy shit as part of that. Right. Which like, I can't really think of any other way to get that kind of capability. Mm-hmm. Other than um, machining it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, like the interesting thing with doing that is that you could potentially cast a master, like a, a female master off of that resin printed part and then just like pour wax into that mold and then have like production casting happening. Right. You know? um, so I do think that's one of the really, really cool things that it potentially enables. I just haven't really found a use for that yet. Right. But for you guys, for making bridges, for instance... Making you me, know, making me think twice about this. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could cast bridges. That'd be awesome. There's a, um, there's definitely precedent in the industry mm-hmm. for cat. Like most of our bridges are cast, right? Or our, um, our our tail pieces, like our proprietary tail piece, is machined. But the tremolo that we often use is cast, right? Cast is it cast zinc or uh, cast the bridge zinc? is cast zinc and the uh, tailpiece, the tremolo is uh, aluminum, right? And I'm sure that the reason that you guys machine your custom tailpieces is because having them cast previously would have been prohibitively expensive. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even an option, <laughs> right? So you one of the to machine things... the first one on your mill, your manual right. mill, right? Shit, I forgot about that. You made him. You made him read part of the machinist's handbook do you remember that like that yes. huge to- like yeah i made him read have? the machining section yeah 
So, um, yeah, and one of the interesting things, because like this kind of metal casting has has become more of a hobby thing, you can literally go on Amazon and type in like metal casting machine. And there are like um, heating units that you can just buy on Amazon for like 200 bucks, plug them into a normal outlet. They'll let you melt like a kilogram of aluminum. They come with a crucible and everything. Oh, sick. And then you can just like... You know, in your parking lot, you could be pouring, um, you know, molten aluminum into an investment casting you, that you've made on a, like a two hundred and fifty dollars three D printer. <laughs> Done. I found. You it. Know? I found. There's many things on Amazon. Yeah, well, I guess because the jewelry industry. That's uh, yeah, totally a common thing to do. Well, and um, I think the three D printing, resin three D printing in the jewelry industry has been a really big hit. Yeah. Um, and people in the jewelry industry will buy like the really nice uh resin printers like the the form labs resin printers and the reason they do that is because those machines are based on a scanning laser which means that you don't get that stair step effect okay you can get like perfect 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 resin prints huh pretty cool he are you buying a casting machine and a resin printer? It's in my cart. No yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Well, I think we've made Nick spend enough money for one episode. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's it. I think we're done. All right. That's our episode. Cool. This was uh, this was an easy one. We could have talked for hours on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep, uh, carry on next week. Yeah. We've still got some listener questions, some stuff we need to get to. So... We will see you guys all again next week. Okay. Have a great rest of your week. Yeah. Catch you later.